On April 3rd, Professor David Karp of George Washington University spoke on his book, The Move-On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy. This event was co-sponsored by the Shorenstein Center and was part of the Democracy Seminar Series, sponsored by the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. For more information about the Ash Center's news, events, and research, please visit www.ash.harvard.edu. So the topic of today's discussion is the relationship between internet and democracy. The internet has changed uh, just about every aspect of our lives in uh, many, uh, many, many dimensions. Digital technologies have transformed the ways that we socialize, the ways that we transact, buy things, sell things, even the ways that we make things, uh, as some people in the audience have uh, written uh, very eloquently about. Uh, many people ha would say that these changes have, for the most part, been for the better. We now have a world of information at our fingertips, literally. We can engage in far-flung discussions about every conceivable topics. We can communicate with friends and loved ones much more easily than we were able to do. Much less certain, however, is whether and how the internet has transformed politics. The hopeful among us see incredible, liberating democratic potential in the new technologies for peer-to-peer -peer and bottom-up communication and action. Some see a darker side of control and manipulation. The truth is probably somewhere in between a mixed story. There's no one better to offer insight on this set of questions about the relationship between the internet and American democracy than David Karp. David is an assistant professor in the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Unlike most scholars looking at this question, David is equally versed in both the new technologies and in the dynamics of politics and organizations engaging in the political arena. He has one foot in the tech world and the other foot in the world of politics. Before he became a political scientist, uh, he was an activist. He was a vice president and board member of the Sierra Club. And so he knows the challenges of organizing and mobilization from the inside. He's applied that inside knowledge in his scholarship in many, many ways. As a political scientist, he's uh, a media scholar, he's broadened his scope to conduct careful organizing studies on a number of groups to understand exactly how the internet is changing the possibilities and frontiers of grassroots politics. He's published that work in more than a dozen papers, blog posts on his great website. You should check it out. And you should, uh, there it is, davidcarp.com. And uh, if you have a device that's capable of it, you should live tweet this event and uh, use at David Karp. And what is our? Shouting loudly is the blog. Shouting loudly is the blog. Great. And um, Kate back there is managing the soundboard. But what is our hashtag? Ash Talk. So use the hashtag Ash Talk if you choose to live tweet. And uh, this work has been published most recently in his book, The Move On Effect, The Unexpected Transformation of American Political Advocacy. So let's welcome David Carp. Thanks, Arkan. And thanks for having me up here. Um, so as Arkan mentioned, I come to the study of the internet and politics uh, actually through experience with political organizing. Uh, I was the national director of the Sierra Club student run arm, the Sierra Student Coalition, in 1999 and 2000. Um, and at that time, I, I actually came to the study of internet politics as a skeptic. Um, so I always like to start this talk off with a little admission, which is when I was the director of Sierra Student Coalition, I, had, I was at a conference at one point, and I had the opportunity to meet a guy named Peter Sherman, 
who had been a former staffer of my organization. Uh, I had you know, read old files that he had written. Uh, and he was the leader of a new startup that was uh, engaging people in politics through e-petitions online. And so we spent about 15 minutes chatting. I told him how the organization was doing these days. He reflected on old days, and he told me about his new project. And then when he walked away, I turned to a colleague of mine. Uh, and we both had been stifling a laugh. And then finally, we let the laugh out. And we said, yeah, that organization is a joke. Because we knew as political organizers that petitions are a tactic, and it's a very limited tactic. And if what we're now doing with the internet is just putting our petitions online, then there's really no point. There's no change is going to occur. Um, I was reminded of that story years later when I was working on the dissertation and came across Peter Sherman's name. Uh, it turns out that he's the first executive director of MoveOn.org. I should let you know I'm also terrible at picking stocks. Um, but that's what I want to talk to you about today is how organizing in civil society organizations, advocacy groups, have changed thanks to the internet. Uh, the take-home point that I'm going to suggest to you is if we want to understand the internet's major effects on American politics today, it's happening not at the behavioral level. The people who didn't want to engage in politics previously are not engaging in politics today. Um, and it's not happening at the behavioral level, but instead it's happening at the organizational level. We're seeing a generation shift amongst American political organizations, and these new organizations engage us in different ways uh, with often more effective results. So uh, appropriate to the Ash Center, what I want to focus on with you here today is really four features. Governance, membership, funding, and publics. I say public specifically because I want to differentiate between the mass public, the 300 million or so people in America, most of whom beyond voting don't engage in politics, and instead focus on issue publics, the segments of American society who engage in politics outside of election day, who write letters to the editor, who make phone calls to their public officials, show up to rallies. This has never been a large segment of American, the American public. In fact, it's always been small enough to vanish within the margin of error of national surveys. Uh, in the 1990s, when I first got involved in politics, it was through a major petition campaign, the Environmental Bill of Rights, that was a response to the contract with America and Newt Gingrich. Uh, and that was the entire environmental movement coming together and gathering a million petition signatures. That's about one half of 1% of the American public just signing the petition. Dozens of them signing it because I was uh, annoying them at a lunch table in high school. Um, so we're talking not about the mass public, but of engaged publics. And that's been a feature of American society throughout our time in America, that some Americans engage heavily, others engage less so. Those that engage are now engaging in different ways, and that's what I'd like to focus on here today. Um, so the question, we've got a new system here, hold on. One of the challenges of giving presentations on technology is something with technology always goes wrong. There we go. Um, <laughs> well, you jinxed it is what happened, so thanks. Um, the question I want to ask is how do advocacy groups arrive at tough choices? Um, this is an email that MoveOn sent out on February 1st, 2008. That was the day, or it was a few days before the Super Tuesday primary in 2008. Um, and it was asking the question, should MoveOn endorse Barack Obama? Today, this probably strikes us as a no-brainer. MoveOn is a liberal organization. Of course, they were endorsing Obama. But prior to Super Tuesday, this actually involved great risk. Prior to Super Tuesday, the governing, philosophy, the governing understanding was that Hillary Clinton was going to be the Democratic nominee and woe be any organization that stands against her. 
Um, MoveOn sent out this message, allowed for a vote, and 70% of the members who voted said yes, endorse Obama. And so they, they took that stance. They endorsed Obama before Super Tuesday. This happened while I was on the Sierra Club board. And several weeks later, after he had won the majority of uh, primaries on Super Tuesday, I went to the Sierra Club's board meeting and said, so are we going to make an endorsement for Obama or for Clinton? And the response was, well, no, we're not, at least not yet, because it's going to take too long to hear from our members. This is critically, I think, the most important thing that has changed between the new organizations like MoveOn, Netroots organizations, and the older single issue groups like Sierra Club that have existed, existed for decades. It's the way that they hear from their members. So the story of this email, I interviewed a few other staffers about it. The story of this email is that when John Edwards dropped out of the race, they noticed in the, a weekly survey that they send to random segments of the membership that far more of them were saying, yeah, we think you ought to endorse. They'd been asking that as a general question for some time. And when Edwards dropped out, far more of them said, we think it's time. The core staff did not think it was time yet. But when enough of their members said, yes, we think it's time, they said, we're going to throw it up into a vote. Their vote rule was that more than two-thirds had to say, yes, endorse this candidate. And if so, they'd make an endorsement. And so seeing that input from the membership through these surveys, they said, we'll ask the question. And within two days, they had an answer. And then they could act on that answer. Older organizations, be they organizations that communicate with their membership through the mail or through federated civic associational meetings, local meetings, state meetings, can only get that sort of input or any sort of input from their membership on a weekly or monthly or yearly basis. Whereas these organizations, a group like MoveOn, can, within the course of hours or days, get a real sense of the will of the membership and then act accordingly. That's an input, a type of input I call passive democratic feedback. That is itself very new, and I will argue to you, good for democracy as a whole. That's not going to work. Um, this same type of input affects their mobilization priorities. So this is a photo of the Wisconsin State Capitol uh, in February or March two years ago. This was during the massive union protests. Those protests, probably the largest labor protest of the past 20 or 30 years, started off as a state policy response to a budget rescissions bill. I can think of few titles more boring than that. Within two days, MoveOn.org and DailyCoast.com and the rest of the political net roots had decided to focus their national membership on it. And they had done so because they sent out test emails and were able to see that, yes, their members, when this is properly framed, care an awful lot about this issue, will take action, will donate money, and they want to act. And so they redirected staff, they redirected resources, and they paid attention to this. And within two weeks, they had organized with a coalition of organizations solidarity rallies at the other 49 state capitals with over 50,000 people attending. That helped to nationalize that issue. Wisconsin didn't happen solely because of the net roots, but it would not have occurred as it did without their impact. These issue generalists, who on one day will work on the Iraq war, the next day healthcare, and the third day Wisconsin unions, mobilize their publics and politics in different ways than we are used to seeing. And thirdly, this also affects tactical decisions. This is one of MoveOn's most famous actions. It's a full-page ad that they took out in 2007, asking, uh, referring to General David Petraeus as General Betray Us. In case you're wondering, yes, when the scandal broke a few months ago, every past MoveOn staffer got jokes tweeted at them. Of course that happened. Um, this led to a, a formal congressional condemnation of them. Um, 
and they were roundly criticized in an organization that was just far too radical for American politics. What was left out of that is that this tactic was tremendously popular with their public, with their members. In fact, due to their structure that I'll discuss in a moment, it would have to be. Because Move On as an organization is getting its, men its money from members. They have to send out an email to their members saying, do you like this ad? Do you like this action? If so, chip in a few dollars. And if the members won't chip in the money for it, then they don't have the money to do it. So that leads them to be responsive to their membership in ways that older organizations with, frankly, more stable budgets don't need to be. It does lead them to more radical actions, actions that can be out of step with the broad swath of the American public. But for their, more, for their public, it forces them to listen more closely than a previous generation of organizations did. So I want to make clear here that we're talking not just about MoveOn.org, but actually a whole generation of organizations. Pretty much every political organization, at least on the left, founded in the past 10 to 15 years have approximated in one way or the other the MoveOn model, and particularly the membership and fundraising components that I'm going to talk with you about today. Uh, this also includes international organizations like Avaz.org, which is an internationally focused spin-off of MoveOn, and a range, you, you can't see this writing, but uh, the Open Network, the Online Progressive Engagement Networks, uh, are a sisterhood of eight nationally-based organizations around the world, all of which have the same structure. So it's MoveOn.org, but also GetUp in Australia, 38 degrees in the UK, lead now in Canada. We're seeing this same model replicated around the world in civil society organizations trying to engage their public to affect their nation's politics. Taking a brief but closer look at MoveOn, um, as I think I mentioned, they were founded in 1998. They were founded, founded by two tech pioneers, Wes Boyd and Joan Blades. Do any of you remember the uh, um, Flying Toasters screensaver? A couple of you do? I felt like more people would remember that. Okay, three of you do, good. So Wes Boyd and Joan Blades created the Flying Toasters. They were able to sell that for several million dollars because we now live in a society where wealth is created through flying toasters. Um, and they then, sitting at dinner, were hearing discussions about the Clinton impeachment, got exhausted by it and felt that we should censure Clinton and move on, and started a website with a petition. Now this was not the first online petition, but since it was a petition through a website, that meant that everyone who signed it, about half a million people, they were left with those names, and so they were able to follow up with them. Those names, everyone who took action on that petition, then became, in a sense, members who they could contact in the future. And that was the start of MoveOn. Now, MoveOn stayed relatively small. When I met Peter Sherman in 1999, I think in retrospect it's okay that I hadn't heard of his organization yet. Um, and it didn't get big until it became one of the main outlets for anti-war mobilization on the left in 2002 and 2003. Today they have over 7 million members, and those members do a lot of things beyond clicking on e-petitions. Uh, in the 2008 election, uh, those members don donated over $90 million to electoral politics and volunteered, almost a million of them volunteered over 20 million hours. Um, and along with the online activity that most of us are used to, they have over 200 locally based move on councils. That's at least four move on members in the same city or area who come together and engage and talk about what they should do locally as move on. Um, they do all of this with about 40 staff people. Actually, that's out of date. They're now down to about 30 again. Um, and no office space. It's a policy that they brought over from their tech area called radical decentralization, where they decided if they had a home office and satellite offices, 
then they would have to manage the types of communication that flow from that, where there would be water cooler talk and people left out of the water cooler talk. Instead, move on staffers work from home offices or work from coffee houses while constantly G-chatting with each other all day and constantly getting onto conference calls. So it's a new structure of organization that requires a lot less overhead, a lot less resources. Um, as an aside, how many of you receive MoveOn's emails? Okay, and how many of you are MoveOn members? Good, so yeah, if you were confused because I already kind of gave this punchline away, the rest of you, congratulations, you're a MoveOn member. Um, and that is one of the fundamental transformations. There's two transformations that I refer to as the MoveOn effect. And that's the first one, is this redefinition of membership. So I want to ask you for a moment to imagine the membership affiliations of a college-aged activist today. A college activist, some student at Harvard who's decided to get involved in civil society organizing. Well, they will probably be involved in some campus group. Being a member of that group means something. In particular, it means showing up to meetings. They'll have weekly meetings that they need to go to, and if you don't go to those meetings, it means that you're less of a member. Membership is de defined through the act of personally showing up. That, act, that student may also have given money to some organization at some point. And so along with the meetings, they also probably get mail. Another type of membership is the affiliations that we're used to over the past 30 or 40 years of writing a check to a group, and then they probably send you a calendar or a backpack, maybe some stamps to put on envelopes, or the address stamps. Um, and that is also a definition of organizational membership. And now we have this third definition, where if they've ever taken an action with Organizing for Action, MoveOn.org, Democracy for America, any of these groups, then they're also defined by those groups as a member there. So membership can mean very different things. Some very thick relationships, showing up to long meetings and forming friendships and, uh, well, probably some enemies through those, that participation, to the thinner mail-based check writing, to the thinnest of all, not even aware that since I'm on your list, I am a member. Um, my point here is that membership itself is an organizational construct. And the change that MoveOn is engaging in now is one that we've seen before. So Theda Scotchpaul, who teaches here at Harvard, wrote a book in 2003 titled Diminished Democracy, where she talks about the shift in civil society organizations, roughly in the 1960s and 1970s, from federated civic associations, where membership was showing up, this was the membership of the Elks and the Rotarians, to membership as check writing, or what she calls from membership to management. That led as well, or was associated, with what we call the interest group explosion in political science. So in the 1970s, we saw the birth of all these new organizations situated in Washington, D.C., that built up large lobbying staff and policy staff to influence politics. Those organizations were often relying on this new type of membership, where what they would do is prospect for members. They would send out all of that mail. Maybe 1% or 2% would respond to the mail. And then those people who wrote checks, they would write to again and would often write another check. And that gave them a stable base of income to build up those offices in DC, to hire those lobbyists and those policy staff. So those new organizations defined membership differently because it allowed them to produce politics in another way. That is organizationally defined, but also technologically mediated. The reason why that starts happening when it does is because it's in the 1960s and 1970s that mainframe computing gets cheap enough to organize big lists as a nonprofit. Sears and Roebuck could do it 60 years before that because there's a lot of profit in, those, in that direct mail empire. But for nonprofits, the technology needs to reach a point where they can take advantage of this and redefine membership. 
Likewise for MoveOn and these Netroots organizations, you can't define membership the way they do today if you're interacting through the mail because you'll go broke in the process. So the last point about this is what this new style of membership means in particular. These Netroots organizations are what I term sedimentary organizations. They engage in waves of mass mobilization around the issues that are current in the news. And then when that wave of mobilization re recedes, they're left with a member list. The social positive of this is that it leads these issue generalists like MoveOn to work not just on the war, uh, not just on healthcare, the big issues that everyone is working on, but also to mobilize around issues that are of public interest, civil society activists want to engage in, but otherwise there would be no nat natural consti constituency for it. So if we look just in the past year, we have the Trayvon Martin shooting. Trayvon Martin is killed in Florida, and at first no organizations mobilize around it at all. Then some organizations within the civil rights space give an outcry, particularly to the fact that this is not, not considered news. And then as it gains some steam, these large issue generalists pivot over and help out as well. They're responding to the issue agenda. So one of the ways that I studied this in the book was by looking at the emails that are sent by these Netroots organizations, along with emails sent by older organizations like Sierra Club, uh, and looking at the, what was shown on Rachel Maddow and Keith Olbermann, because back then Keith Olbermann was on the air, uh, how quickly this stuff gets dated. Um, but so I looked at what is the news agenda for Maddow and Olbermann, which is sort of the, the clear liberal media. They're speaking to the same audience that MoveOn is. And what is the issue that MoveOn is covering in these other groups? And what I find very clearly is that the large new organizations are issue generalists. They work on whatever is on Maddow, whereas organizations like the Sierra Club, when the oil spill happens, they happen to coincide. But otherwise, defenders of wildlife, no matter the issue, they'll be emailing their members about wolves. So this leads to activation around issues that other, would otherwise be left fallow, would otherwise receive no representation, even if this representation is slimmer than we might ideally hope for. Um, so this changes what issues organizations work on and what tactics they choose. Um, I'm also, I've decided to put up the red equals just to say very current. Um, because one of the things that constantly comes up when we talk about the internet and politics is this notion of clicktivism. Um, I want to suggest to you today that we should let that critique go. We should, we should let that one die a quiet death. Um, so this red equals was all the rage last week. If you went on Facebook, you likely saw at least somebody, uh, somebody on your uh, thread who had changed their profile photo to the red equal sign. And that was in recognition of the Supreme Court debating gay marriage. Um, this was a solidarity act that people took. And it led to an awful lot of people writing blog posts and op-eds uh, about how, look, activism has gotten so light and weak today. Where's the social movement activation? Why aren't they out in the streets? Um, and what I find funny about that is, for those of us who have attended a rally, when you attend a rally, what's the first thing that somebody gives you? A leaflet and probably a sticker or a button. That's a sticker or a button, but it's digital. So we're engaging in actually a lot of the same processes that we did before, where people are wearing a button in order to show solidarity with the issue. However, we're doing it more visibly and leaving these digital traces that organizations can then use to follow up with you and get you to turn out to that rally or make that phone call or write that check. So while the individual tactic may seem very thin, it provides an entry point for this broader amount of organizing, which is tougher to identify. So we fixate on the one tactic and say, 
it's all e-petitions all the time, that's collectivism and it's probably bad for society. Whereas if we're looking at the broader campaigns, suddenly this seems much more deep and rich and nuanced. Um, This is my big busy chart, because all academics, I was told once, have to have a big busy chart. Um, and this is just laying out for you these three generations of organizations. The first generational transition is the one that Scotch Paul discusses in her 2003 book. The shift from the cross-class membership federations, again the Elks, the Rotarians, uh, to these single issue professional advocacy groups. And what I'm suggesting to you today is that we're now seeing another generational transition. From these single issue groups, to these internet-mediated issue generalists. And again, the main thing that is driving that change is not only have they redefined membership, but that's leading to a different style of fundraising. So we've gone from the direct mail fundraising to this, uh, these online appeals, which generally are targeted to the issue of the day. I want to get into that for a few minutes now. Um, so there's three elements of this Netroots fundraising model that I think are particularly important. Uh, the first is that Email, in particular, has zero marginal costs for scaling. What I mean by that is that 100 emails cost as much to send, if you have the list, as 10,000 emails. If you have a list of 10,000 people, it costs as much to send to 100 as 10,000. That is not true for direct mail. For direct mail, there's marginal cost for every single piece of mail that you're adding in. That leads to a very simple outcome, which is if you are using the medium of mail, then you have an incentive to have a smaller, more narrow, more winnowed, targeted list. Because if you're mailing to too many people, again, you will go broke in the course of communicating with them. If you are emailing to them, then you have an implicit limit of, if I send too much email, then people will unsubscribe. Um, organizations have found the limit to be about three or four emails per week that they can send without getting too many unsubscribes, so long as they don't say something offensive. Um, but beyond that, once, without that limit, once you've got the list, you can just keep on sending. So in the email communications medium, the incentive is for larger and broader lists, whereas in the mail communications medium, the incentive is for winnowed targeted lists. That then allows for this passive democratic feedback through A-B testing. And A-B testing is simply taking a small set, two small segments of your list at random and sending out variant messages so that you can see which one is more popular. This is commonly seen, particularly through the Obama campaign, with headline testing. So if you were on Obama's list at some point, you got very, very sick of getting these emails that said, hey, or dinner with Michelle, or dinner with George Clooney. And there was some nice journalism that happened after the election about how that all came up. They were rigorously testing that and finding which ones were most effective. And it turns out that as weird as it is to get an email from the president that just says, hey, that's the message that performed best. Now, we're seeing this not just from civil society organizations, but also, and I think more problematically, from news organizations. If you go to the Huffington Post, you will see as a headline something dramatic. And then if you read the story, it might not actually be so dramatic. Um, if you go to Politico, you will find massive political conflict, even if the whole story is not massive political conflict. And that's because those, those news organizations, when you visit their page, randomly uh, assign you to one headline versus another. And over the course of about an hour, they measure and see which headline attracts the most clicks. Conflict attracts the most clicks. And so we end up with a news environment that gets artificially more polarized. That's what we call the quantified audience. It's based on work by a guy named Chris Anderson, C.W. Anderson. Um, and the quantified audience, personally, I think is normally a very big problem in the newsroom. Because it's leading these news organizations to prefer conflict 
based on our clicks, even when we also have uh, our own meta preferences that say, I would like stories that aren't constantly about conflict when conflict isn't happening. Um, within civil society organizations, though, I would suggest to you, it's pretty much an unvarnished good. It allows the organizations not only to find out which, ta which uh, messages are more likely to get opened, but also which issues are most interesting, which actions are members willing to do. Again, thinking back to the Betrayus ad, there's a lot of different options that they could take with that ad. And rather than choosing the option that individual staffers said we like most, they were instead allowed to look to the membership, test it, and through our passive clicks find out what is the action that our members are willing to take. If you don't like that action, that's your right as a citizen. It also means that Move On is probably not the organization for you. If you did, it means that that is probably your community of interest. And then the, the last thing that this leads to, again, I've already noted this a bit, is this practice of headline chasing, of working on whatever issue is in the news. Now, this provides a relatively light form of representation. Move On, part of the reason why they went and engaged in Wisconsin is because these Netroots organizations are never going to sit across the table, sit down across the table from management and hammer out a labor contract. There are capacities that these new organizations don't provide. They don't provide a lot of volunteer training. They don't provide lots of field organizers because those things are difficult to fundraise for through quick online actions. Instead, they're going to where the issue is, working and then leaving. So they're a part of the advocacy group ecology, but it'll be a problem if they end up being the entire thing. Um, just to animate this fundraising style that I'm talking about here, these are two emails that I got on the same day in December of 2008. And one is from saveourenvironment.org. This is a traditional advocacy group, environmental advocacy group that has created a .org component. The other is from Move On. Save Our Environment says, we have less than 48 hours to reach our goal of raising $10,000. There are lots of reasons why you should give right now. First, because we're counting on you. Second, because the year is coming to a close. And third, because there's no time like the present. This language is probably familiar to you. And if it's not, when you go home today, take a minute before you throw out the junk mail and actually read that thing that got mailed to you. This is exactly the language that was developed through decades of direct mail research, where we found, as the direct mail industry, that this kind of language was most likely to be effective. Somewhere down the line, they'll mention something about, and if you give today, we'll give you a backpack. Um, Move On said, dear Move On member, you've probably heard about how Wall Street financier Bernard Madoff scammed investors out of at least 50 billion. You may not have heard that his victims include the foundations that support some really important progressive organizations. Then they go on to describe those organizations and say, given what just happened in the news with Madoff, will you please donate today to this particular cause? Notice the timeliness of the appeal. They are asking you to take action on the thing that you just watched on the news and are upset about. This is a more effective fundraising style, but it also produces targeted money. The money that you raise for those organizations in response to Madoff has to be spent on those organizations. The money that you raise to put a commercial on TV or to put the Betrayus ad in the newspaper needs to be spent directly on that ad or on activities reasonably related to it. That's fine if you're moveon.org and you have 30 staff or 40 staff and zero office space. But if you're one of the traditional advocacy groups that in the 70s, 80s, and 90s built up this massive infrastructure of DC offices and lobbyists and policy experts, then the money that you're raising through these targeted asks doesn't actually pay for your infrastructure anymore. It's similar to what universities see all the time, that it's very easy to get, or it's easier to get alumni to give to targeted projects rather than to the general fund. And so sometimes uh, universities can pay for lots of special projects but can't keep the lights on or pay for the human resources department. 
The Netroots organizations largely don't have a human resources department. Older organizations have a lot of that. And meanwhile, of course, the older revenue streams are collapsing. This is for the simple reason that we're paying our bills online now, and so direct mail rates have been falling and falling and falling. As direct mail craters, that means that the older organizations, I don't want to pick too much on Defenders of Wildlife, I do like them, um, but this is Defenders of Wildlife's beautiful office building, including a cool statue of a wolf in Washington, D.C. I know how they pay for that in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm not so sure how they pay for it now, and I'm very worried about how they pay for that five, ten years from now. Because the revenue streams that supported that type of infrastructure are disappearing and being replaced by a different type of fundraising. That's the other half of the move-on effect. Just to animate this, I took six months of email from 70 political advocacy groups and did content analysis on it that involved an awful lot of coffee. Um, and one of the things that I did, there was over 2,100 messages as, as a whole, um, and there were 350 messages from these organizations that were fundraisers. And I classified these, these fundraisers because there were three types that became apparent. The first is a general fundraising style. That's what you just saw from saveourenvironment.org, of give money to us for general work. That's money that can be used for human resources. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I'm, but it's in the book, so if you buy the book, then you can actually read this text. Yeah, all right. Um, the second is the targeted style. That's what I've been describing as the move-on style. The third is a pass-through style that was pioneered by Emily's List. And that's where the organization is saying, here's a great candidate for Congress. Please donate to them through us. So it's a donation to a candidate, but it's, it uh, serves as a political act where they let the candidate know this is because Emily's List likes you or because MoveOn likes you. Um, we break the 70 organizations in my data set down by founding year, before MoveOn was founded to after MoveOn was founded. What we find is all organizations do send out those general fundraisers. In particular, the Netroots groups, which is the blue bar, they send out those fundraisers after a big win. So in the data set, it was the first half of 2010 that included the healthcare victory. All these organizations said, we want healthcare. By the way, do you want to chip in? Um, but the older organizations, that was almost all of what they were sending. Targeted fundraising, this is almost enti entirely being done by the new groups, the new generation of organizations. And interestingly, pass-through fundraising invented by Emily's List. In those six months, Emily's List did it. And twice, League of Conservation Voters sent out a message like that. Whereas the, the, the newer groups, the move-ons, the progressive change campaign committees, Democracy for America, Daily Coast, all of these Netroots groups are consistently and actively saying, here are candidates that we like that have just championed our cause. Please give money to them. It's a new part of their tactical repertoire, an old tactic that now gets made use of far more often than it did before. So we see, while all organizations are, in fact, using the internet, there's a generation gap in how they use it. They're engaging online in different ways. This creates a troubling pattern that we've now seen replicated in a lot of other areas of civil society. Um, so I'm a political scientist who teaches in a communications department, so I need to doff my cap to the communications scholars for a moment. Um, there's a general story that has emerged about what happened to the newspapers. And in particular, as I like to tell my students, it was not the bloggers that killed the newspapers. It was Craig Newmark of Craigslist. The problem for the newspapers has not been a readership problem. NewYorkTimes.com and CNN.com get more readership than any blog. It's not a readership problem, but a revenue problem. And what specifically has happened to our news organizations is that there were a set of fundraising streams that they were relatively sure of and reliant on. These were things like classified advertising and other types of advertising uh, that have all now declined. Uh, Clay Shirky refers to it as, it used to be that Walmart 
was subsidizing the Baghdad Bureau. And now, because of Craigslist changing the classified ads market and Google changing the rest of the ad market, now those revenues decline. And even though newspapers as organizations are still things that we value, we now find a situation where the news organizations can no longer pay for the fancy office space in midtown Manhattan. It's a revenue problem that they face, and that's the reason why we've seen these bankruptcies over the past five or six years now, and continuing in, in uh, was it, the Boston Phoenix just closed. That's a revenue problem. It's not that there's no public for the Boston Phoenix, it's that they can't pay for their overhead anymore. Um, so the story, the process that we see here, is that the new medium allows for emerging markets off to the side. This is the disruption pattern described by Clayton Christensen, also here at Harvard. Um, that then leads to the disruption of revenue streams, and it's when those revenues are disrupted that we see the decline of old institutions. Now the problem here, again to draw a parallel, I don't mind if we lose specific newspapers as physical newsprint. Broadly what I mind is if we lose specific types of journalism that provided a public good. So the types of journalism that we're most worried about as a society right now are investigative journalism and local journalism and international journalism. And again, there are interesting projects here at Harvard, at the Berkman Center, uh, where um, with Global Voices, we're finding ways to provide international journalism on the cheap through crowdsourcing because otherwise we're seeing the Baghdad bureaus close and we're not seeing that journalism flow through. There's no news problem with covering opening day of baseball. There's more, there's an abundance of journalism for that. But specific types that provide a public good were being funded by these big slushy revenue streams. And once those revenues collapse, those are the, then become the first things to cut. That then leads to this threat that I call the loss of beneficial inefficiencies. In the newsroom, the inefficiency of the uh, classified ad market paid for some public goods, investigative journalism. In civil society organizations, there are also public goods that are being provided. Ideally, civil society organizations serve as laboratories of democracy. So it's field organizers that go around in communities and help engage a public in politics. It's people who run volunteer trainings and help teach democratic skills. I spent my youth with Sierra Club and one thing that I learned was how to run a really efficient meeting. That's a democratic skill that I now find in academia most of my colleagues lack. That was something that, that that's a beneficial, uh, that's a societal benefit that people are learning to engage with each other in that manner. And it flows through civil society organizations. Um, but this change in funding patterns and this change in organizational makeup threatens those components. So one of the things that civil society organizations traditionally have produced for us, these laboratory of democracy style settings, is now threatened not because they're not popular, but because we don't know how to pay for them anymore. Because when organizations, I sometimes give these presentations to organizational audiences, and so I'll ask the question, has anybody tried sending out a fundraising email for a training program? And two or three sorry people will raise their hands bashfully. And then I'll ask the question, how did that go? And that produces a laugh from the audience. Because for advocacy professionals, they all know the answer to that. We as citizens, just as we have a preference for good quality news, even though we always click on the, the cat headlines and the, the scary stories, we also have a meta preference for good news. We as citizens have a meta preference for field organizers and trainings departments and organizations that act as laboratories of democracy. But our revealed preference is what we donate to, what we're mostly donating to, putting an ad on the air that responds to the thing that you're angry about because you just read an article about it or just saw a story about it. And so that creates a gap, a loss of beneficial inefficiencies that I would suggest we need to be worried about today. 
this transition from old groups to new groups is not entirely positive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure. So um, there's also a set of scholars actually at here at Harvard, um, Schlotzman, Verba, and Brady. Sid Verba is, is, at, Har is at Harvard, uh, who wrote a book. They wrote a book in the mid '90s, and then another one called *The Un Unheavenly Choir*. And uh, oh, thank you, Unheavenly Chorus. And their point is that when you look at the behavioral level, the mass level of citizen participation, the internet has changed very little. And they've become sort of one of the major important sites amongst political scientists about tamping down overwhelming exuberance about the internet. That if you look at the mass public, the people who engage in politics today are demographically pretty identical to the people who engaged in politics 20, 30, 40 years ago. And these participatory gaps, it's largely the wealthy, the, the is it, wealthy, white, and well-informed, well-educated, who engage in politics, that, those gaps are still present today. Um, the reason for this bullet point is that I think that they're right. I don't actually dispute that research line. But what I want to suggest to you is, while that's true at the behavioral level, at the organizational level, the sliver of the American public that engages more broadly, that's where we're seeing a change occur. Um, so this then leads to, I promise, my last slide, uh, which is the internet's greatest impact appears at the organizational and not the behavioral level. Uh, Clay Shirky already m mentioned wrote a book in 2008, Here Comes Everybody, that was subtitled The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. That's a book that I enjoy a lot. I actually teach it in class. But I would suggest to you that what we're actually seeing, the bigger impact, is organizing through different organizations. And there's positives and there's negatives here. So that one of the positives is that this sedimentary activation leads to mobilization around more issues than before. And also that this passive democratic feedback means that even though membership is thinner than it was, it's a thinner tie, it's also a more communicative tie. The new groups can hear more from their membership than the older groups could. And I cannot help but think of that as a good thing. But that also these shifts in revenue streams, while giving rise to a new generation of groups, also is leading to problems for the older groups and is potentially robbing us of some functions that they provided that we haven't been appreciating enough and we need to start appreciating now. That's not necessarily a crisis. There's other revenue streams out there you know, if left-leaning donors tomorrow decide they really care about trainings, then a lot of these concerns go away. But it's a concern that I feel it's my duty to mention to you because I don't think donors tomorrow are going to decide that they really care about trainings. So when we think about civil society organizations, we should think about the social benefits they produce and also take a little more care in making sure that they continue to be provided in the new media environment. That's what I have to tell you, and I would love to hear what you'd like to know now. This has been a production of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School.